All right. Welcome everybody to the Therapy Insights Resource Roadmap Show. This is where we get a chance to talk to the writers about all of the new resources that we've just added to the library. And we have Troy and Ross here with us today to talk about all the different creative ways to use those resources and some of the evidence behind the content that we create. So we're going to go ahead and dive right in. I'm going to share my screen so we can see the resources as we talk about them. And the first resource we have is how to tape for lateral ankle sprains. It's a two-page resource that um, has a lot of great images, step-by-step instructions for how to do this. So Ross, tell us a little more about this resource. Yeah, so uh, uh, this resource, um, I was thinking uh, a lot of us learn some tape techniques in school or during uh, internship training, but then if you don't regularly work with people with ankle sprains, you can uh, easily forget how to do some of these things. And so having kind of a step-by-step guide for, uh, taping the ankle can be helpful in those, uh, instances. Um, and I decided to write about the figure of six ankle, uh, tape job. It's one that I've been using personally with a, uh, client who has, a um, a rare neurological disorder called ARTS syndrome. And he has a lot of, uh, inversion uh, with his ankle when he walks and this seems to stabilize his ankle and it's a less bulky tape job than the traditional figure of eight uh, tape job that's commonly used Um, and there's some research showing that it actually does um, this research looking at athletes showing that it does actually alter the mechanics of the ankle when you land on on the ankle so um, it actually does provide some uh, support to the ankle so Um, Essentially, it goes through your step-by-step instructions. So typically, you want to shave the ankle, cover with an adhesive spray. Um, You can use pre-wrap if you want to protect the skin even more. Uh, And then uh, you keep the foot in neutral uh, dorsiflexion the entire time. And you use uh, just a regular athletic tape works fine for this. and essentially you form a figure of six uh, with step uh, 4a you can see how you start on the top of the foot you work down medially then wrap around uh, to the side of the ankle come across the front in front of the lateral malleolus and then you end kind of near the lateral ankle and then you can do two or three straps like that overlapping a little bit as you go Um, and then on the next page if you look at 5a you can do the heel lock uh, which, um, so the initial figure of six on that we went over on that first page uh, prevents, uh, it kind of pulls the foot into a more everted position and then the heel lock will kind of keep it from rolling the other direction. So uh, you start on the front of the ankle, uh, you work laterally, then wrap back inward um, over the medial heel, and then you end on the top of the foot. And it's kind of the same where you can do multiple straps if you want to provide extra stability. And then you can apply uh, anchors over the top of those to uh, um, to hold everything in place. And you can actually provide a figure of eight over the top if you want, but the, the downside of the figure of eight is it is a bulkier tape job. And uh, of course, this is just my clinical experience, but I found that it's also harder on the skin, I think, than this one, because this was a less bulky uh, tape job, so. Great. And then you also, was that the one that tied in with the article snapshot? Yeah, yeah, uh, it did. Uh, the Yeah, the, the article snapshot, I was looking at... Uh, one question that we frequently have in PT is there's a lot of different types of tape that can be used to uh, support the ankle. You can use uh, 
um, regular athletic tape, which is what they used in that other study with the figure of six. You can use Luco tape, which is an even stronger rigid tape, or you can use uh, kinesio tape or rock tape, which are your stretchy tapes. Um, and that other study um, that used the figure of six actually did find that it was uh, successful in changing mechanics um, at the ankle with landing. I looked at another study that was looking at uh, kinesio tape, and essentially they took, um, it was like, I think it was around 30 uh, healthy people, and they did EMG analysis of uh, different muscle groups. They had them on a tilt board, and essentially they um, had four different conditions. One, one was shoes with no tape. One was shoes with tape. One was just tape barefoot. One was barefoot, with no tape. And they had this tilt board move in different directions. And they looked at the latency of activation of the muscle and the overall activation of different muscles around the ankle to see if the tape affected proprioception and stability of the ankle. And what they found was that uh, shoes actually decrease the latency of the peroneals, which you don't want since the peroneals are your most important muscles for preventing uh, an inversion ankle sprain. Um, and they thought that uh, might be because of decreased sensory input with the use of shoes. Um, the overall activity of the peroneus longus and tibialis anterior was increased. So that's kind of counterintuitive, but there's a difference between activating when you want to activate and just having a lot of activation. Um, so shoes did increase overall activation, just not necessarily when you want it. Um, and it, a lot of that was just because the shoes, uh, might actually tilt the foot a little bit into inversion. So you just kind of have more resting tone of the peroneals with that. Um, and so kinesi the kinesio tape basically did not do anything, uh, for support or proprioceptive activity. Um, though, uh, one thing to keep in mind is that this was all healthy individuals. So it's possible that, um, the results would have been different in people with ankle sprains. Um, but I thought it was an interesting study and definitely applicable, applicable to, uh, um, that tape, tape piece for sure. Great. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to skip back to the next resource, which is. I love this resource. It's a two-page resource all about um, home, home modification for individuals who use wheelchairs, specifically looking at doors in Troy. You can tell us more about this piece. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, so exactly. It's it's for folks that have, you know, what where I envision uh, clinicians using this is for someone that has, uh, you know, acquired a recent injury or trauma of some sort that, that's going to require long-term use of a, of a manual wheelchair or a power wheelchair, I suppose. And often with that, with discharge planning and things like that, there's a lot that goes into home modification. Um, so this is just one piece of what's really going to be involved in um, appropriate home modification for someone that uses a wheelchair. And specifically with the doorways, what, what we cover um, with this uh, piece, it kind of breaks down what are the, the ways that first you go home and assess are these doorways going to be adequate? So it kind of talks about what we call clear space uh, versus thresholds versus door stops and things like that, and, and what we can do to, to modify the door. So it uh, goes through some kind of basic examples of how to modify to some more complex ones that might require you know, maybe some home carpentry or even some modifications that require, you know, a professional carpenter as well. So uh, the first option that a lot of people will sometimes use is 
to pick up clear spaces, you just remove the door. Um, so with a standard hinge, the door swings, uh, you know, swings open and you'll, you'll lose about, you know, maybe an inch and a half to two inches of clear space of where a chair could roll through that door because of the way that the door hinges work. Um, so if you just need a little, you know, that's simple, right? You just pop off the hinges and you're ready to go. Now that's complicated, right? If maybe this is into a bathroom or uh, a bedroom or something like that, where you want some more privacy, you know, might not be as good of an option, but maybe you live alone or, um, uh, uh, with a caregiver and, and you don't mind that, um, then that works great. Um, so that's one option. The other option that can pick you up just a little bit of space is you can, um, that, that requires just some simple carpentry, um, would be, uh, removing the door stop. So the door stop is, the portion of the door that's next to the handle that's actually on the frame, the door frame, not the door itself. And people will just take uh, pretty much just a, a, a saw and cut off um, that small piece of doorstop below the height of the chair. So you can still keep a lot of the doorstop intact. So it's still it's going to be able to close, you know, relatively tight and things like that. Not um uh, yeah, not rattle or not push through, but you just cut off that last little bit. But that really though, that's only going to pick you up maybe a half inch um, at most. So, um, but that can help if you need more. Uh, another recommendation they make um, they make uh, they're they're called swing away hinges. They look a little different. You probably have to special order them, but they're not expensive. Um, and what this does is the the um, the hinge is a lot. Uh, bigger, you can install it in the same way you you would have with the door. But as you swing it open, um, it will remove the uh, width of, or the depth, I guess, of the door into the clear space on the um, on the other side of the room to to which the door is opening. So it opens up that space as well. You can still keep it closed. Um, uh, yeah, so that's a a good option. Um, also. You can widen the door, right? So that's the most expensive option, but you know, it kind of takes a, a patient through this is these are your reasonable resources here to make this um this home or this space a little bit more appropriate. It also gives some recommendations in terms of what uh, uh the American Disabilities Act uh or Americans with Disabilities Act um suggests as well in terms of width so that you can you know, kind of build it uh, standard to that. Um, so maybe you're even setting up this space as a uh, a place for, you know, maybe your aging parents or, you know, something along those lines and you, and you want to make a space that's uh, ADA accessible. This will give you some ideas on that and what's required for, um, for doorways. The other half of the resource is about um, thresholds and door handles. So it breaks down what's required for ADA in terms of thresholds. Um, how you can modify a threshold. There's some, you know, simple options, which is you just get a, um, they make a mat that is a ramped mat, more or less, that you can put over the top of the threshold uh, or up next to the threshold so that it's just a smooth ramp into the door um, or into the next room. Uh, or you can build um, an actual beveled threshold um, so that when those front caster wheels are trying to make it through the doorway, they're not getting hung up um, or, you know, uh, if you're going quick and you hit something with your front casters and you're not able to get over it, that can be a, an issue of, of safety. Uh, and the last piece is modifications of uh, door handles. So the probably the 
The best solution is you just install handles that have levers. Um, if that's not something that is doable in your home, whether you um, you know you have a kind of a vintage classic look in your home and you don't want to replace the handles or things like that, there are aftermarket products that um, you can fasten to a door um, to give it to to make that doorknob into a lever or something very similar, so that it can ideally be opened with one hand um, is really the. Uh, the goal or with weak, um, yeah, weak grip strength. So for someone, you know, that's maybe using a wheelchair that has weak strength, you know, maybe someone that has a cervical level spinal cord injury where they don't have good hand function, this is, is really, really helpful for them. Um, so yeah, so a nice resource though, for anybody that's kind of in the initial phases of home modification and often, right. It's a little bit of a frenzy for caregivers and family members, right. They've just often had somebody that's, um, going to have significantly different different uh, physical abilities and they're in the hospital or in a nursing facility or something like that. And maybe you're trying to get them home. And so often this stuff is really, really important. It's really built to be like, hey, here you go. If you have some carpentry skills, like these are some good options of some stuff that you can do tonight or this week or whatever um, uh, to get, get a loved one uh, back into their home environment. So yeah, great. Thank you. I mean, I, my wish is that all homes would be required to have universal design elements as far as like the width of the doors and accessibility um, yeah. considerations. But that is not the case, even though we have a lot of building codes in this country. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of homes that are older homes, especially, yeah. you know, you'll run into issues with this where it's you got a door frame that's just like, not doable in any way um yeah, yeah. and and mobile homes, modular work, homes. So. yeah great thank you okay we'll move on to the next resource which is a four-page resource i believe i broke it up into two different slides so as we talk about it i can go to the next one this is a reference for clinicians all about diagnostic metrics simplified um, so you've taken a very complex topic, Ross, and made it digestible. So I'll let you talk about this resource. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this, uh, as uh, Megan was saying, is, is really uh, geared towards clinicians. And really, um, it's something that I wish I would have had when I was in PT school. So I think that uh, whether that's PT, SLP, or OT students, I think could all benefit from something like this, too, if you're um, needing to understand how diagnostic metrics work and what some of the main ones that you see, both in literature um, and for your clinical practice, how they work. So the first portion, uh, the first two pages is kind of getting into the nitty gritty of uh, some of these different uh, values. <laughs> and uh, I'll try not to get bogged down too much in some of the details because you could probably easy, easily talk about this stuff for a long time. And then the second two pages are more like a very simple, very clinically applicable sheet uh, that we'll go over as well. So um, with those first two pages, uh, it talks about sensitivity uh, and specificity. And so uh, sensitivity, uh, you're always, the key word to remember there is that you're always dealing with people with uh, disease. So if you look at that uh, little table up there, um, the sensitivity column, is uh, on the left there. Um, and typically uh, to calculate the sensitivity of a test, you're taking people with a uh, positive test who have the disease, your true positives, 
and then dividing it by the total number of patients with disease. So the keyword to remember there is with, if you remember that, it makes it easy. Um, and practically speaking, uh, sensitive tests are good for ruling out. We all learn spin and snout and how, uh, you know, a sensitive test is good for ruling out disease. Um, though, uh, as we'll talk about, there are some limitations with that. And essentially, uh, sensitive tests are, tests are good for ruling out disease because if a person say there's a test with 100% sensitivity, it means that it's detecting virtually everyone with disease. So that means if someone has a negative test, it's virtually impossible that they have the disease, if that makes sense. So um, specificity uh, is you're dealing with people without disease. So you're looking at the uh, next column over there. And uh, the equation for that is people with true negatives, so D, divided by the total number of patients without disease. So it's D over B plus D is your equation there to uh, for specificity. And uh, specific, specific tests are good for ruling in disease because if a person tests, um, if the person tests positive because a test with 100% specificity would detect virtually everyone who did not have a disease. So it makes it highly unlikely that a person with a positive test doesn't have the disease. Accuracy I threw, I put in there because uh, you see this pop up in the literature and essentially um, it helps to differentiate healthy um, and unhealthy cases correctly. And so the formula for that is A plus D over the total number. So essentially it's your true positives, true negatives divided by the total number of uh, people tested. Um, predictive values, I'll, I won't get into too much. I think they have more limited usefulness in clinical practice um, and uh, Essentially, the positive predictive value is the proportion of people with the positive result who have the disease, um, and negative predictive value is the proportion of people with negative result who do not have the disease. The reason why these uh, have more limited applicability in clinical practice is because it can change a lot depending on the prevalence of the disease in a population. So as an example, a Lachman test is very... Um, it's a very sensitive and specific test. It's about 0.9 for each, which is very good. But if you're using a Lachman on, say, 100 random people from the community with no knee trauma and no swelling and no pain, even if you get a positive test, does it mean that they have an ACL tear? And probably not. And so um, that's why I think that your predictive values, even though you see them in research and it can be good to have an idea of what they are, um, it's not something you're probably going to apply to clinical practice as much. Um, so you have your likelihood ratios, and these, I think, are much more applicable in clinical practice. So um, the positive likelihood ratio is the probability of an individual with disease having a positive test divided by the probability of an individual without disease having a positive test. So um, there, the formula is your sensitivity, and we'll go over this a little bit on the next page too, but it's your sensitivity divided by one minus specificity. And what makes this useful is you can take, uh, so long as you know your sensitivity and specificity data, you can take uh, any test and figure out how much it's increasing the likelihood of a disease with a positive test. So say someone has a positive likelihood ratio of 10, they have a positive test, it means that they now are 10 times more likely than they were before of having that disease when you test for it, if that makes sense. So it's it's very, much easier to apply in clinical practice. Um, the negative, like, and so typically with those, you want to have high numbers. So 10 is very good. Um, negative likelihood ratio is uh, um, kind of dealing with more of the negatives and your 
the formula is one minus sensitivity divided by specificity, and you want low numbers with this less than one. So um, typically 0.1 is a good number to, you know, to shoot for with the test. That means it has a very good low likelihood ratio. And so um, um, as we'll talk about, you know, if you have a test, say you, you think someone has 5% chance of having a disease and they have a likelihood ratio of 0.1, then that means that they, you've now taken, uh, with a negative test result, you've taken their chance of having a disease from 5% all the way down to 0.5%. So it means it's a very valuable test in that case. Um, whereas if the number is higher than one, it's basically a useless test. And it's kind of the opposite with the positive likelihood ratio. If you have a positive likelihood ratio less than one, it's basically a useless test. Um, so um, we kind of talked about the advantages there and we could probably skip over to the next page and we'll talk a little bit about how to apply these a little bit more. Um, so essentially you can take your sensitivity and specificity and I was uh, playing around a little bit with some of the Lockman data with this before we uh, started this. And so as an example, um, to calculate your positive likelihood ratio, you take your sensitivity, which is 0.9, and you divide that by one minus 0.9, since the uh, specificity is also about 0.9 for the Lachman, and you'd end up with a number of nine. So that means that with a Lachman test, someone's about nine, if it's a positive test, they're about nine times more likely to have an ACL tear than uh, if they did not have a positive test. And you could do the same thing, one minus the sensitivity, in this case, we'll say 0.9, divided by the specificity, um, and that ends up working out to about, um, uh, 0.11, uh, and when, as we talked about, you know, if you had a 5% uh, pre-test probability, that would reduce your risk to about a half a percent. Um, so this is where there's some subjectivity. So if you have, uh, you have to estimate the pre-test probability. And so there is subjectivity with this. You could also use data from studies, you know, looking at prevalence rates, but the chances are is that, that a study won't have the same prevalence rates as your population. So you have to be careful with that. Um, but as an example, if someone twists their knee, it's a non-contact injury, they have a pop and swelling, you could probably put a pretty high, you know, just based on your clinical judgment, they might have an 80% chance of an ACL tear in that case. And so you can use um, your clinical judgment in that way. So this uh, nomogram here, uh, in our example, so we talked about, say someone has a 5% chance of having an ACL tear prior to you testing them. Um, that's your pretest pr probability on the left. So if you drew a line from that through about 0.1, which is your likelihood ratio, your negative likelihood ratio, you would see how that line would work out to around a half a percent if you drew a line between the two, if that makes sense. So that's how you can use the nomogram, um, or you can just use uh, pretty simple math to kind of come up with your post-test probability as well. Well, this is one way to launch your documentation into orbit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't Pick think it's it something that you have to, you know, <laughs> And I, I don't think it's something where you have to like take every test you do with someone, you know, if you do 10 special tests with someone, you don't have to sit there and like, be like, okay, what's my chance here? It's more to kind of give you an idea of how useful is this test, you know? So mm -hmm. if you're reading a study, there's some new test and you want to see how useful is this test in my clinical practice, you can do some of this, work through this and kind of come up with an idea of what the chances are um, that someone might have a disease with or without a positive test result. Very cool. Yeah. And it's a great way to you know, just double check the resources that we're using as far as assessments. Um, yeah, yeah sure absolutely. They're going to work. 
Yeah, I love it, Ross, because I mean, it's it's I think when we when you learn this stuff, especially the first time, I think all tests are created equal in the novice eye. Right. Um, so I think that this this does provide some insight to, yeah, to either a real advanced student or, you know, uh, 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 probably even a seasoned clinician in terms of what, you know, if I got a positive on one of these tests and a negative on one of these tests, which one do I actually care more about? Um, this is a nice, a nice resource for that. Right. And also um, something else that I think with the likelihood ratios that can be interesting is a lot of times we put a lot of value in tests that have very high, say, sensitivity, but a low specificity or high specificity with low sensitivity. But when you calculate the likelihood ratios, since likelihood ratios are related to both, sometimes you realize, oh, this test is even though it has a high specificity, it's still garbage. You know what I mean? And so it's it, it can be useful uh, to. Um, to apply to tests that you use in clinical practice. Or like I said, if you see a new study with the new test, you can use that to kind of see how useful is this test in my clinical practice. Great. Thank you. Okay, the next resource we're going to talk about, also written by Ross, is what is proximal hamstring tendinopathy? This is a two-page resource that has some pictures, some anatomy drawings on it. Um, and it goes over what it is, how it's diagnosed, and how it's treated. Uh, Ross, tell us a little more about this resource. So uh, this is uh, designed to be a handout for people with proximal hamstring tendinopathy. It's just kind of an educational resource to help them understand uh, their injury. So it goes into uh, um, what uh, the hamstrings are and what they're involved, you know, that they're involved with uh, sprinting or climbing uphill, and that uh, this, this uh muscle attaches to your sit bone or your ischial tuberosity. And that uh, essentially tendinopathy is when you have degeneration or micro tearing of that tendon. Um, uh, when you're doing, typically it comes on over time when you're doing a lot of activities that compress the tendon since tendons don't really like compression, they like tensile loading. So um, this picture here with people jumping hurdles is a, a very good example of a position that would put a lot of pressure on the uh, proximal hamstring tendon with the hip being flexed forcefully and rapidly um, into flexion. Uh, you can kind of see how the tendon would be wrapping around the ischial tuberosity a little bit in that position. Um, and so uh, it talks about um, activities that can cause it. And then it talks a little bit about um, the sciatic nerve, which is just lateral to those tendons and how sometimes swelling or irritation of the tendons can also cause sciatic-like symptoms or nerve pain type symptoms down the leg as well. Um, talks a little bit about how it's diagnosed. And so usually it's a combination of history and physical provocation tests. Um, you can use imaging uh, to rule out other um, issues like tears, um, but usually that's not necessary. necessary. Um, and then it talks a little bit about treatment and how, um, unlike some of our other tendons, like the Achilles tendon or the patellar tendon, there's a lot less, um, there are a lot less randomized controlled trials available to guide um, clinical practice with this one. Um, but we do know that uh, data from other studies looking at different tendons shows that infrequent but high intensity contractions seem to be optimal for um, rehabbing tendons and then also avoiding compression. So I really liked this uh, illustration that was included with this where they, they show a hamstring bridge. Um, and this is a great way to load the tendon. And because the hip is more extended rather than flexed, you're not compressing that tendon into the ischial tuberosity. So you're giving it that tensile load that helps to remodel and strengthen up that tendon without giving it the compressive load that's more likely to irritate it like during a straight leg de deadlift. 
Um, and it talks a little bit about um, that it's a long haul with any tendon issue, um, but especially insertional tendon problems. You know, you're looking at least three months is kind of the minimum for rehab to start seeing changes and really might be more like six months to see a big change. Um, and then there are other medical interventions like injections and shockwave therapy. There's not a lot of data um, surrounding those at this point, but they can be options if conservative treatment isn't working. And then surgery can be used. Um, and I think this is probably a pretty rare surgery, but that would involve releasing the hamstring tendon and sciatic nerve as well. So kind of a nice, uh, simple two-page resource to help people with uh, this condition kind of understand what's, uh, what's going on and what to expect of treatment. Great. Yeah. And I love how it's easy, easy to read for patients and broken up into nice sections. Yeah. All right. We went over this article snapshot. We've just got one more for everybody and Troy, take it away with this one. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, I circled back around to this article. It's a little bit older, but we've seen some stuff uh, that we've put together for you in the past that cites some of this material. Um, so the article is called Strengthening and, op um, and Optimal Movements for uh, Painful Shoulders and Chronic Spinal Cord Injury. So this is a study that was done about a decade ago, but it's used a lot in both outpatient and even inpatient settings um, right before discharge for home programs for individuals after spinal cord injury. Um, I think the reason that this study is used uh, so frequently is they did a really nice job in their appendix of not only proving that these exercises are effective for wheelchair users at reducing shoulder pain, but also this appendix has really well laid out home program. So it's just like a one-stop quick um, way to uh, access a home program for individuals um, that's really well detailed and evidence-based. So um, yeah, so so take a peek at the, the big study if you want, but ultimately what it looks at is um, yeah, reducing um, chronic shoulder pain for wheelchair, manual wheelchair users. It involves a 12-week uh, home exercise program really is meant to be done in the home. The only things that you need for this is uh, TheraBand and some light uh, weights. So, you know, something that, that can even, even be modified at the home with, you know, a grocery sack uh, full of some items or, you know, the classic soup can or something like that. So it is some low load exercises, but really goes into good detail on how to do that. Um, yeah, uh, they looked at, I don't remember exactly, but less than 50, I think more than 30 subjects um, uh, with this chronic shoulder pain and ran them through these protocols. And um, uh, really, uh, the vast majority of people had a significant in, uh, decrease in their pain. Um, and then it was nice because after the study was over, even those that had the kind of sham intervention, which was, I think, just uh, kind of like uh, non-specific shoulder anatomy education and things like that. Um, that group didn't get better, but those researchers still gave them the protocol anyway. So it is a, it is a really valuable, um, uh, piece that I just wanted to, to be able to give our, um, our, uh, subscribers access to, to, to understand kind of where that comes from, um, and what the actual basis is for, for giving that. So. Great. And we have, 
a resource in the library that outlines the protocol, right? We do. Yeah, we do. Exactly. So this is a nice one to kind of, uh, you know, if you've just been using that blindly, like I feel uh, like some of us do, um, uh, this might be another thing to look back at and say, oh yeah, here, this is why this is valuable. Or maybe you're having a patient that it's not really into that, uh, the idea of a home program or something like that, you know, you can, and you're trying to do some motivational interviewing or, or something along those lines of, um, uh, of seeing if this person's going to be ready for this change. This might be a, a nice piece to be able to give someone that does, you know, is maybe a little bit more analytical or, or wants a little more um, evidence behind, you know, maybe doesn't take your word at face value, I guess this might be a, a nice thing for them um, too, to help, help, uh, help them. Yeah. Make a healthy, healthy choice. Great. Yeah. And we'll link that in the show notes for this show Great. as well. All right. That's our show for today. Thank you everybody for watching. This is actually our last episode of the Physical Therapy Resource Roadmap show. So just want to thank everybody for watching and engaging with us. If you have any questions, you can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com. Thank you.